0: Welcome to Below the Line, a podcast by the Northwestern University Law Review. I'm Danielle Burkowski.
1: And I'm Amanda Wells.
0: And we're both editors for the Northwestern University Law Review Online.
1: In this episode, we are thrilled to bring you Professor Amanda Frost. Amanda Frost is a professor of law at American University where she writes and teaches in the fields of constitutional law, immigration and citizenship law, federal courts and jurisdiction, and judicial ethics. She also authors the academic roundup column for SCOTUS blog. In addition to her recent publication, Alienating Citizens, with the Northwestern University Law Review online, she'll be publishing a book on immigration, titled Unmaking Americans, A History of Citizenship Stripping in the United States in 2020.
0: Professor Frost will be discussing her article, Alienating Citizens, where she declares that denaturalization is back. Over the past couple of years, she explains, the Trump administration has revived denaturalization. The essay situates denaturalization within the Trump administration's broader approach to immigration. Under a policy known as attrition through enforcement, the Trump administration has sought to discourage immigration and encourage self-deportation. We will discuss how her research and use of Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA requests, revealed this policy its implications, and current and recent developments in the law. We hope
1: you enjoy the episode.
0: Welcome, Professor Frost.
1: To start out, could you talk about what denaturalization is and how it is being carried out?
2: Sure. Denaturalization is when an uh, individual who acquired citizenship, U.S. citizenship, later in life, that is, they were not born with it, but they acquired it through a legal process known as naturalization, then has that citizenship taken away from them? And that term is denaturalization. And when uh, denaturalization is successful, when the government indeed takes away citizenship, the, the judicial view or the legal view of it is the person never had citizenship in the first place. There was some mistake or error that meant they never should have been a citizen. So that's the definition of denaturalization.
1: That's significant. Uh, and in your article, you describe the administration's immigration policy as attrition through enforcement of this process. Can you explain sort of what that phrase means and how this is happening?
2: Sure, but I think I'll back up first and just describe a little bit more about what the Trump administration is doing sure. regarding denaturalization. So um, first, I'll just situate This piece, Alienating Citizens, is a part of the last chapter of my book, Unmaking Americans, uh, which you mentioned in your introduction. And the book will be published in the fall of 2020. And it is a history of citizenship stripping in the United States. It starts all the way back with Dred Scott, goes through the uh, history, the nation's history of uh, first granting birthright citizenship in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, but then Attempting to deny birthright citizenship first to Chinese Americans, then taking away citizenship from women who married non-citizens, finally going uh, discussing Japanese Americans, uh, many of whom uh, lost their citizenship during World War II, um, and other historical examples. Um, Alienating citizens, my article for the Northwestern Law Review online, is a piece of the final chapter. And the final chapter is citizenship stripping in the 21st century. So I'm describing modern-day occurrences, developments uh, in terms of taking away citizenship. And denaturalization, I'm sorry to say, is just a piece of that. So just to quickly recap some of what I discussed in the article, um, the article describes how the Trump administration has revived the practice of denaturalization. As I explained in my book, taking away citizenship from naturalized citizens was something the government did very aggressively in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. And the goal, the government's goal was to take away citizenship from those it viewed as un American. And so it would argue, even decades after someone got their citizenship through naturalization, that they had never truly been attached to the principles of the Constitution, that they lied when they swore under oath, that they, um, when they swore allegiance to the United States and the Constitution under oath, even if it was years ago, because of their current activities. And typically the government went after people that had some affiliation with the Communist Party. But not just anyone who had affiliation with the Communist Party, but typically labor leaders, people who were actively protesting and seeking to have better conditions for workers, were people who the government clearly profiled and targeted. And that's uh, pretty clear in the historical record And my book describes that. So then, in the 1960s, this issue came before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court held the government could not continue to do this. So the 14th Amendment protects citizenship, it protects naturalized citizens, The government is not free to take away people's citizenship. But in a footnote, the court said, but of course if citizenship is granted in error or by mistake through some mistake in the naturalization process, then that route remains available to the government to take away citizenship. Court clearly meant that to be a very narrow exception to the general rule of you cannot denaturalize people because of their speech or activities or religion or anything else. So we had many decades that followed with both Republican and Democratic presidents None of whom tried to denaturalize more than a very small number of people. So we saw a few Nazi war criminals lose their citizenship because they lied when they became Americans about their past. A few examples like that. Maybe 10 or 11 people a year. Now, under the Trump administration, that has very clearly changed. The administration is investigating 700,000 naturalized citizens, see whether there are mistakes in in the record in which they became citizens. It has actively sought to remove the citizenship from a number of people, and it says it has 1600 cases it's hoping to refer for denaturalization in the coming year or so, and it's asked for um, millions of dollars to support this effort. So that is, in a quick recap, the denaturalization program under the Trump administration that I described, and it's why my opening line of my article is denaturalization is back. Now, you asked about attrition through enforcement. In the article, I make a connection between denaturalization, which is as a small, and I explain it's a small subset of what I see as a larger phenomenon, um, which is called attrition through enforcement. That's not my term. That's a general term that actually Chris Kobach came up with. He's never been officially part of the Trump administration, but he advised the Trump administration. And starting well over a decade ago, he said, look, he's anti-immigration. He's very open about it. He's a restrictionist. He wants to remove undocumented immigrants and slow immigration. And he said, look, we can't deport 11 million undocumented people in the United States, no matter how aggressively we go about that. So let's instead take the tact of trying to make life very uncomfortable for, he said, undocumented immigrants. That was his focus, Chris Kobach. So he said, we will uh, slowly diminish the number of undocumented immigrants, or, or maybe quickly, if we make life very difficult and uncomfortable by pursuing each and every person who could be pursued for removal, but also by making it incredibly difficult for them to rent apartments, send their children to school, uh, deny all benefits such as welfare and food stamps, et cetera, make life very difficult and they will leave. That was his theory. And my argument is, the naturalization program is part and parcel of the Trump administration's practice of attrition through enforcement. And in the article, I run through many different ways in which the Trump administration has tried to make life difficult, not just for undocumented immigrants, but also for legal immigrants, like closing off pathways to come to the US, by making the United States feel like a hostile environment, even those with legal status. And of course, the ultimate example of this is people who have citizenship for over a decade think they're American as much as anyone else. And yet, because they're immigrants, they're at risk of losing the citizenship and being deported.
1: Do you think there is a legal basis for what's happening or that it could be challenged in court? Uh,
2: I think the government would claim the legal basis for taking away citizenship, particularly in the cases I describe in the article. The government justifies um, denaturalization because there was a mistake, it argues, in the process by which those individuals became citizens. And indeed, in all three cases, there was some problem or error, some more serious than others. But the, as I explained in the article, the process of becoming a citizen, of going through the green card process, getting a green card, then spending five years with a green card, and then going through the application to become a citizen, there are many places where a small error could occur, where, frankly, even a typo could arise, or where someone could answer an ambiguous question in a way the government decides means they lied or, at the very least, didn't give all the information they should have. And as I explained in the article, there are examples of just that happening, which means really anyone who goes through the process of naturalizing runs the risk of an error being found in their paperwork years later. And so when you say, could there be a legal challenge to this? Yes. I think the argument would be um, the Trump administration has overread the, or read too broadly, the, um, not not loophole, but the the permissible grounds for denaturalizing, which is some serious error that goes to the heart of the process, and instead is uh, using denaturalization as a weapon to threaten the status of all naturalized citizens, which is clearly what the Supreme Court was afraid of when it tell the government needs to stop denaturalizing people.
0: I know you wrote about this in your article, but can you give us an example of one of these errors that the government uses to attempt to denaturalize someone?
2: Yes, I mean, the case that, that to me was most shocking was the very first case brought by the government against a man named Beljinder Singh. He had been in the United States for 27 years on the date they brought the case. He'd been a U.S. citizen for 12 years. He had no criminal record and was married to a U.S. citizen. So all of those facts uh, actually are not legally relevant, the government would say, but I think it's important to know just who the government's going after, people that really have proven themselves to be good citizens so far, anyway. So Beljinder Singh lost his citizenship because the government said, well, he was ordered deported under a different name. And the government presented it as if he'd intentionally um, uh, used a false name, intentionally uh, ignored, uh, refused to to uh, follow a deportation order, and then gave a new name and became a citizen knowing all along that he should have left the country. But if you look at the facts as the government presented them, it's pretty clear that an error occurred. When he came into the country, his name was listed as Devinder Singh. Um, he was 16 years old. He was taken in by an adult guardian. And that adult guardian moved addresses. They moved their location. And it's pretty clear that this 16-year-old, this teenager, never got the notice to show up in immigration court, never knew that he was ordered deported in absentia. But he didn't try to hide his presence in the United States. He didn't try to evade authorities. He immediately filed for asylum under the name Belgenderson, so very similar sounding name. Now, did he lie about his first name? It's possible. Also possible that some immigration official wrote down the wrong name or a translator gave the wrong name. Um, and I think it's just as likely. He went through the whole process of getting asylum, and seeking asylum rather, and then got married to a US citizen and became a naturalized citizen that way. So except for this screw up about the name and the fact that he never got the notice because he was his home moved, his address changed when he was a teenager, he did nothing wrong. And yet he lost his citizenship. He was uh, denaturalized. Uh, a year, a year and a half to two years ago.
0: So you used information from the Freedom of Information Act request to research your article, specifically regarding Mr. Singh, but also other documents. How did you land on this strategy?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not unique to me. I always try to throw in a Freedom of Information Act request when I can. I actually started off my career doing a lot of open government work, so I'm very comfortable and familiar with FOIA. The Freedom of Information Act, it's actually quite easy to use intentionally. You don't need to be a lawyer to use it, I'm just going to say that I think the Freedom of Information Act is a very powerful tool, and I urge any listener, lawyer or not, to use it if they want information from the government. So I tend to file Freedom of Information Act requests when I think that I might get some information from the government that could be useful. And here, in particular, I wanted to know why the government was targeting the individuals it had pursued. And... Also, why it had decided to ramp up and expand denaturalization in this unprecedented way.
0: And we're curious about what that FOIA process looked like. We're sure our listeners would be interested, too. Um, how many requests did you submit? Who would you submit them to, et cetera?
2: Yeah, so I submitted a number of different requests to the relevant agencies, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, Department of Homeland Security. I followed their website guidelines for how to do so. Um, I waited months. I was actually considering filing an appeal because I had been back and forth, I have been in email and phone conversations with the government official in charge of my request, and it felt to me like they were really stalling on me and not giving me the information, and as I said, months passed. And just as I was getting ready to file an appeal, which is just a letter that you write appealing the decision to a higher officer, and the reason it's significant, sometimes you get an answer to your request when you do that, but that also... Um, exhaust your administrative remedies such that you can then file a lawsuit. So it tends to get the agency's attention. I was on the verge of doing that when I got a response to my Freedom of Information Act request. And I should add, I was not the only one seeking this information. A reporter that I'm familiar with her work was doing that as well, seeking that information as was a group called Muslim Advocates. And we all got, in the end, a, a link to an electronic link to that information, which is now publicly available to everybody.
1: And since your article published, uh, has there been any updates in the Trump administration's denaturalization campaign or any uh, pending litigation?
2: Yes. Well, so I attended the um, denaturalization trial of a man named Parvez Khan, as I mentioned in the article, that was in the Southern District of Florida, sorry, the Middle District of Florida in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, I believe in April of 2019. I then phoned into a, a conference over the summer where the lawyers gave their their final summation before the judge. And the judge said then, I'll decide the case by, I think she said September, or certainly you know August, September, by the end of the summer. And of course, here we are in January 16th, 2020, and I checked PACER today, and the case has not been decided, which is interesting to me, and I need to, I'm not sure why, I, I'm not sure why she clearly, the judge clearly uh, is taking more time with it than she'd expected to. So that's one development. Um, I know the United States government has also opened an office in Los Angeles, specially tasked with going after pursuing denaturalization. It has lawyers as well as investigators and it's investigating, as I said, 700,000 naturalized citizens records. I have not heard of a great number of lawsuits being filed. And I'm guessing that the process is going more slowly, in part because there's a lot of public scrutiny now of its denaturalization campaign.
1: And what have you found in regards to why the Trump administration is targeting these naturalized
2: citizens? The question is, you know, why these particular individuals, for example, the first three people you might think would be the first three men targeted, you might have thought they would be special or important. The government released a press release about them. You'd think there must have been something compelling about their cases, suggest they should be the first people to lose their citizenship under this uh, you know, new uh, push to to use denaturalization as a as an immigration enforcement weapon. And what's interesting is these three men, you know, at least one of them had a, a fairly serious problem with his entry. Um, Parvez Khan, his case, I observed. He clearly came in under a false name and intentionally did that, so that's serious. It doesn't mean he could never become a citizen or legalize his status, and the government concedes that, but he did commit a serious immigration violation. But the other two men in particular, all three men, have been citizens for over a decade, are married to U.S. citizens or were married to U.S. citizens, have no criminal record, no convictions. There's nothing to suggest that they should be targeted. So. What is the government doing? Well, two things. One is, you do have to notice that all three is you know, there are two Pakistanis and an Indian immigrant, right? Those are the countries that come from. so they they haven't gone out of their way to find the Irish immigrant who naturalized and made an error, right? and And uh, I think that's not insignificant in this administration that the people targeted uh, are from uh, you know they're not white, and to put it bluntly. Um, also, I think it's um, part of the general strategy of just go after everyone. So the Trump administration, when Trump took office, the first thing he did was rescind the priorities in immigration enforcement. Under Obama, Obama said, well, there's 11 million undocumented people approximately, but we're going to really we can't remove them all. We don't have the resources. So we're going to pursue serious criminals, right? those people with criminal records. Those are our first targets. First thing President Trump did is say, no, we're, we're taking away that list of priorities. We will pursue each and every person that we come in contact with. Everyone is here without status or potentially it's something that would lead to their removal. They are all at risk regardless of all of the other things going on in their lives. They're US citizen children, or spouses, their good works in the community, how long they've been in the US. None of that matters to us because of attrition through enforcement. We want each and every person in the United States who may have a problem with their status, to feel at risk of removal. I think with the goal of hoping these people would remove themselves. So I see the the approach to denaturalization is very similar. Each and every naturalized citizen should now be concerned that some error in the process could lead to their removal, regardless of how long they've been in the US, regardless of how long they've been a citizen, and regardless of how good a citizen they've been, regardless of the fact that they have no criminal record and they have deep ties to the community. Everyone's at risk. I think that's the message being sent.
1: Would a new administration be able to change or rescind this policy?
2: Certainly. So part of the reason I filed the FOIA request, um, part of what interested me is uh, the law is overbroad in my view. The law that allows someone to lose their citizenship without any statute of limitations, even 50, 80 years later, you could lose your citizenship for even a minor error. The law would seem to allow that. Um, So the law is too broad. But presidents before Trump, at least since the 1960s, so a good 50 years before Trump, have chosen to use that power with great discretion. And so they've, as I said, only tried to remove citizenship from a handful of people, 10, 11 on average a year, each year. So what President Trump has done differently is to say, no, we're going to go after an enormous number of people. And Jeff Sessions, when he was attorney general, put this very clearly in a memo that I cite in my article, saying let's use denaturalization as an immigration enforcement tool. Let's be very aggressive about it. Let's use it for everybody. Let's use it all the time. So uh, those, are, you know, those aren't his exact words, but that is very clearly the message he sends in this memo. I'm not um, I- I- implying. He didn't imply it. He said it. So could a new administration change that approach? Absolutely. So the next administration, if it chose, Trump now, if he chose, could immediately abandon the policy of being very aggressive about denaturalization and go back to being selective in enforcement Uh, or selective in the use of denaturalization and pursue only those people who lied intentionally and who lied about very significant aspects of their past or their current uh, status in the United States.
0: And if that policy changed, how would any pending cases be impacted?
2: Uh, That's always a hard question for an incoming administration. Um, They can drop pending cases. They can concede error or decide not to pursue pending cases it's often um, a new administration often feels some sensitivity about that because courts don't like it when a case they've worked hard on is suddenly pulled from the docket because a new administration took over. But that can happen. That has happened. You even see sometimes a new administration switch positions before the U.S. Supreme Court after an old administration argued a different position below. So a new administration could entirely change course if it chose.
0: And you mentioned everyone who's been naturalized is potentially at risk whether or not they have a criminal conviction or whether or not they knowingly lied. Um, Is there anything naturalized citizens can do to avoid being removed or denaturalized?
2: I mean, I don't want to unnecessarily scare people, but what you just said is true because even a minor error, an inadvertent error can lead to denaturalization. And by the way, if you are a naturalized citizen because you are the child of someone who naturalized, In other words, you you obtained your status derivatively, and your parent loses citizenship, then so do you. So the completely innocent child of a parent who made an error also loses their citizenship. So although I don't mean to scare anyone, what you said is correct. Um, What could you do to protect yourself? Well, first of all, get a really good lawyer when it comes to going through the naturalization process so that you avoid any possible error. Read every question on the naturalization form as broadly as possible and answer it as if it has the broadest possible uh, scope, so you won't be accused of omitting information or, or failing to tell the full truth. And other than that, vote for different people to come into office. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I feel so strongly about this is because ne- the United States has made clear, the Supreme Court, and also just throughout our, our history, The naturalized citizens are not supposed to be second-class citizens. They have every right that a birthright U.S. citizen has, save the the ability to be president, because you have to be a natural-born citizen to be president. Every other right is granted to a naturalized citizen. It is not a status that's supposed to be second-class or different in any way. And yet, as you can see, and as Masha Gessen, a reporter for The New Yorker, herself noted, and I quote her, once you start investigating naturalized citizens and suggesting that they're at risk, you without um, you put them all at risk. You make them all feel like they are vulnerable and they don't want to come to the government's attention. They want to avoid that. And so you make everyone who's a naturalized citizen think, I am vulnerable in a way that a first-right citizen is not. And I better keep out of the government's eye, better avoid angering or coming to the attention of the government or else I'm at risk.
1: That's a lot. That's... Most of our questions, we did want to ask if you had any concluding
2: thoughts or anything you want to add. Well, I guess the only thing I'll add is that I thought it was a very powerful example of what I just said. So I was just telling you that because of the campaign against naturalized citizens, it makes them second class citizens. It makes them feel at risk and it makes them want to avoid coming to the government's attention. Well, when I went to the trial of Harvez Khan, his older brother testified on his behalf. His older brother was also a naturalized citizen, but you know, his, his citizenship was not in question in this case. And yet, when he took the stand to testify on behalf of his brother, the government began asking him questions about his citizenship status and began to question him and suggested that he had obtained his citizenship by fraud as well. And I think it's a powerful example of how once the government opens this Pandora's box of questioning the legitimacy of naturalized citizen status, every naturalized citizen is at risk and every naturalized citizen has an incentive to uh, try to avoid government scrutiny or coming to government attention in a way that um, undermines our democracy.
1: That's chilling. Yeah, thank you so much for talking about this heavy topic. Um, before we go to lighten things up, we would like to ask, as we do for all our guests, if you have any recommendations for any books or podcasts or movies related to this issue or otherwise, for those who would like to dig a little bit deeper.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so actually, this American Life has done really powerful episodes on immigration across the board, Um, not so much focused on denaturalization, but on many of the immigration issues that I mentioned in my article, um, including some really great podcasts following the Trump administration's executive orders that were issued his first week in office um, and their effect on refugees trying to come to the United States um, and others in the United States. I really highly recommend this American Life as a great source and resource on that question. Um, And there's also been some really interesting podcasts on Dred Scott. And I find that case to be fascinating. I learned about it in law school as a case about slavery. And of course, it dictated, among many things, the Civil War. But it's also a case about citizenship. And that fact, which, you know, obviously at the time was less important, um, tends to get overlooked today. And so, Um, I think reading and learning more about the Dred Scott case is fascinating. So I recommend um, any podcasts or books relating to that as well.
0: And of course, also your upcoming book, Unmaking Americans.
2: Thank you. Yes, everyone should immediately read that. (laughs) They can't read it right yet, but in the fall. uh, please. And actually, I should add one more thing about my book, um, Unmaking Americans. I have written many law review articles in my life, and I enjoy writing them. But this book is not meant for law professors and law students specifically. It is meant for a mainstream reader. It focuses on the stories of those who've lost their citizenship told as much as possible from their perspective using primary documents. And it's told in narrative nonfiction form. That is, it's told in the form of stories. Um, And it's meant for a mainstream audience. So it it is a lighter read. It is, as much as I like my law review articles, I wouldn't say that those make bedtime reading. And my book is intended for something you would pick up Uh, as a pleasure rather than just to learn more about the subject. So for those readers who do want a a lighter take on these issues or a more accessible take, uh, sorry, for those listeners who want a lighter take on these issues, my book would be a source.
0: Great. I look forward to reading it. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Frost. Yes, thank you.
2: Thank you all and Northwestern Law Review uh, for excellent editing and for putting together this podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Today's episode of Below the Line was hosted by Daniel Burkowski and Amanda Wells. Special thanks to Professor Amanda Frost, Olivia Vega, Jing Wanbo, Ken Zabler, Annie Prosnitz, Kimmy Raley, and Elliot Luthen. Our music is June Funk by Finn Johnston. If you like our podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes, subscribe in Apple Podcasts, and follow us on SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.